Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my buddy, William Kwam. William, what's going on, man? Uh, not much. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad we're uh, we're finally recording this. We uh, we were supposed to record the other day, and it's been uh, it's been a hassle getting it done. But we're finally here, and we're gonna we're gonna have a good chat. I'm excited about this because you know I'm so deep in um, the NHL playoffs and just that consuming all my time and thinking about it. And obviously, we're focusing on that on this show most days. So the fact that this is gonna be a bit of a reprieve, and we're gonna talk about a bunch of random NHL topics, is uh, is gonna be a nice little change of pace. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah. So. Let's uh let's start with your sort of background or your um your path towards getting here. That always interests me, and I'm, I'm sure um, our listeners our listeners would appreciate the fact of getting a little a bit of a backstory here. So, and you and I had a chat on the phone before we started recording this, and uh, you were telling me a bit about your time with the Rangers and some stories there. And I thought, uh, you know, if you'd oblige, it'd be kind of fun to talk about that now that we're actually recording. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, how I got my start with the Rangers was, was quite funny. Um, I was a sophomore in college and, uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to get in to the NHL somehow, but, um, I really didn't have a path and I didn't really have any connections in the business. Um, so, so I get this internship with Banff Hockey Academy, which is a small little hockey academy out in Banff, Alberta. And it just so happens that um, Glenn Sather, that's where he spends his summers. So I kind of get this bold idea that I'm going to get the internship and I'm going to go up to his door and I'm going to knock on his door and I'm going to say, Mr. Sather, I want to work for the New York Rangers and it's going to go great. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, so I get the internship. I'm in Banff and um, I uh, I go up and uh, I knock on his door and <laughs> he opens the door and he looks at me and he goes, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> and my heart is just pounding. And um, like, I, 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 I didn't even know what to say. And I was just like, Mr. Sather, um, my name is William Kwam. I am interning right down the road at, at Banff Hockey Academy. Uh, and, and my goal is to one day work for the New York Rangers. And he just gives me like this dumbfounded look and says, yeah, good luck, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, oh, my God, I had no idea what to say. Here's a question. Did he have, um, a, did he have a cigar in his mouth at the time? He did. Okay, <laughs> so good, good. Okay, good. Just want to make sure. And, and, yeah, it just makes everything even more intimidating, right? Mm. Um so um, I, I just kind of splurred out. I'm like, Mr. Sather, uh, I'm really passionate about the hockey business. I really want to work in the NHL one day, and, and, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to show to show you that I, I can do this. And uh, he goes, all right, um, meet me at my house at 7 a.m. on Saturday morning. So uh, I leave his property, and I call my dad, and I'm like, you know, what, what, what do you do at 7 a.m. Uh, on a Saturday morning to grab breakfast? That's 
he must, we must be going out for breakfast. Like this is going to be an amazing opportunity. Um, and I show up Saturday morning. I have my dress shoes on. I have like a nice pair of jeans and a collared shirt. And uh, he's standing there and he hands me this laundry list of things to do. And it's like mow the lawn, wash his car, clean the gutters. <laughs> it just went on and on. Um, all yard work. Um, and, and that's how I kind of got my start into the business. I did that for him like every other day for the whole summer. And, you know, during that time, some days I was working with him and I was helping and some days, you know, I was completely by myself. Um, but that's how I kind of got my relationship with Mr. Caesar, um, just by helping him out around the house at the end of the summer. Um, he looked at me and he said, if, if you, if you do the Banff Hockey Academy internship next summer, let me know. I'm definitely going to need some help. And, um, I came back and I did it again for my whole junior year summer. And then um, going into my senior year, I, I applied for a job with the Rangers in hockey operations. Um, I got the position, and, and that's how it all kind of came to be, just by the luck and fortune of knocking on his door one day. <laughs> you must have really been good at mowing the lawn. That's, uh, that's, that's my big takeaway from that story. <laughs> I was probably about no, he, he oh, oh, my God. He would, I think the first time I mowed it, he looked at me and was just like, uh yeah you need to do that again <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome um, yeah people think people think working in in the front office is all uh is all rainbows and lollipops and all good stuff and you're you know you're you're having these fancy meetings and you're watching games and winning stanley cups but no it's a lot of uh lawn mowing and a lot of doing the dirty work <laughs> yeah it completely is and, and and when i started working for the rangers that was a really eye-opening experience because it, you know, you kind of pull the curtain back to the NHL. And, and like you said, you think it's going to be this big spectacle, right? <laughs> and it, it's really not. Um, it's long hours, a lot of hard work, um, a lot of egos. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't change anything. It was working for the Rangers was a, an amazing experience. And uh, everyone treated me so well there. So what, what, what year was that again? You were saying it was like 20, 2014, 15, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. The year that we went after Jimmy Vesey. So mm. yeah, 2014-15. Right. So what what kind of stuff were you doing for them this season? Because obviously, um, you know, it was such a big um, organization, but at the same time, um, you know, I think it's changed quite a bit now under Jeff Gordon. And I imagine, um, you know, things are being run differently and it's much more progressive. But at the time, um, I imagine that, you know, the league as a whole, not even just the Rangers, but things were a step back from where they are right now. And so I'm kind of curious, like what was, what was sort of going on there behind the scenes and what kind of stuff were you doing for the Rangers? Yeah. So I was really just a Jack of all trades kind of guy. I mean, my, if you want to call it specialty, you know, I wouldn't call it a specialty, but um, I kind of focused in on analytics. I thought that's where I could bring most, the most amount of value um, to the organization. And, uh, I was working under a guy named Jim, Sol uh, Jim Sullivan, who's their director of analytics. Um, but you're right. It was, you know, the kind of the changing of guard, you know, when I was there, uh, Mr. Sather was starting to take, take a step back. He had just handed the reins over to Jeff Gorton, who was now the GM. Um, you know, Chris Drury was now in the mix. He wasn't the assistant general manager just yet. I believe he was the director of player development at the time. Um, so there, so it really, there was a kind of like a change of guard. Um, and it was interesting to witness, but, uh, my specific role was really just a Jack of all trades kind of guy. I, I did a lot of work with analytics. I did, um, you know, analytical breakdowns on unrestricted free agents, um, on our own players. Um, if I wasn't doing that, I was helping out with depth charts. You know, we had this massive board, um, you know, for every single team and we were constantly updating depth charts you know, if players were in the minors, if they were in the NHL, if they just signed a deal, how long was their deal signed for? Um, but, you know, I also did video breakdowns. Um, we were, like I said, we were going after Jimmy Beasy that year. So I, I watched a lot of video on mm. Jimmy. Um, but I also dealt with the CBA a little bit. Um, so I really was a jack of all trades kind of guy. It wasn't like super specific. It was wherever you can, you know, try and help and add value to this organization. Uh, you know, do it. Well, the Rangers fascinate me because 
you know, in that market and sort of their history of um, really spending money and not being hesitant in the free agent market to make big swings. Um, you know, now they're in an interesting spot here where, you know, this year they made wrote that letter to their fan base, um, basically saying, like, you know, we're going to turn to a new chapter. We're going to embrace a rebuild here. And they made a bunch of really smart moves, acquiring a handful of picks. I believe they have three first rounders, two seconds, and then potentially two firsts again next year if the Lightning win the Cup. And they don't really have any bad money on the books either after the next couple seasons. So it's like it's a chance for them for a clean slate and potentially doing this thing uh, the right way and kind of embracing a longer term rebuild. At the same time, you know, Henrik Lundqvist is still playing not necessarily the top of his game, but he's still an above league average goalie and that's going to make it tough for them to fully bottom out while he's still there. And now you're hearing all this stuff about, you know, they're potentially in on Ilya Kovalchuk and it's just with the Rangers, it's always, you think, Hey, they might actually be kind of doing this in a more reasonable, uh, drawn out way. And then all of a sudden this summer, they could easily, very easily flip that switch and just go completely the other way. So I'm very curious to see what happens there. Yeah. And to be honest, I am too. Um, you know, I, they have such a great staff, you know, Jeff Gordon's a, a really intelligent guy and, and Chris jury, uh, you know, he's, he's really amazing. You know, he treated me so well when I was there. Um, but I, I think you're right. And I, you know, when I was there, there was always the topic of conversation of, of, you know, how do we get back to the cup final? You know, how do we have this opportunity again? And, and you always had different opinions of, you know, do we need to go younger? You know, what pieces are we missing? Um, so, you know, I agree. I think it's really going to be interesting. Um, you know, there was, <laughs> there was one time we were all having lunch together and, you know, I'm obviously at the bottom of the totem pole. So <laughs> I'm sitting at the end of the, the lunch table and, you know, we're just talking trades and, you know, somebody broaches the question, if we can trade one player right now, who do we trade? And um, everyone kind of gives their opinion and it gets to me <laughs> and, I think this was like week three or week four. And um, I was like, yeah, uh, let's trade Henrik Lundqvist. And it just goes silent. <laughs> and everyone looks at me. And uh, Jeff Gorton looks at me and goes, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and I was like, well, I was like, with all due respect, you know, it's like we're talking about rebuilding this thing. You know, he's maximum value right now. Um, like if you look at him, he just came off the great season. He's getting older. There's no doubt in my mind that he's going to start to regress, which really hasn't happened all that much. He's done a phenomenal job at, at, at his job, um, as he's gotten older in age. Um, but to me, I always thought, you know, if you could, you know, get rid of a player at maximum value who, who has an opportunity or, or is going to have the chance to regress over the next couple of years, because he's getting older in age, you know, to me, it was, yeah, you're going to take a hit from the fan base. You know, you're losing the King, which, you know, it, it's going to hurt. But, you know, if you're able to get really valuable pieces back and, and really grow the thing, then, then I always thought that that was going to be a huge value for the team. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I, I, I think what um, Jeff Gordon is doing is great. I thought he had a great um, spring. Uh, I thought the letter to the fans was great. And, you know, I, I'm really pulling for him. I hope he, I hope he gets the boat uh, back on track. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at their page on cap friendly now and it's, it's a bit of a unique scenario where, you know, like a team like the Detroit Red Wings, for example, like it's tough to envision over the next couple of years, them pulling out of this just because they have so much bad money tied up in players who don't project to get any better with, with this Rangers team other than, you know, the Shattenkirk and Stahl and I guess Lundqvist deals like for the most part, it's really just a younger group that isn't on the books for a long time. So it's like Jeff Gordon really is going to have a clean slate here, sort so to speak, to build this team the way he wants to and the way he envisions it. And it's not something necessarily that he just, you know, fully inherited and now his hands are tied behind his back. So it's a, it's a great opportunity for him. I, under, I imagine with that market, though, there is a certain um, amount of added pressure that it's not, you know, one of those things where I don't think... I mean, when you're running any team, you don't, you don't envision it being bad and irrelevant for four to five seasons. But I imagine there, especially, there's sort of an added pressure to uh, capture people's keep, capture people's attentions and be relevant on the uh, on the mainstream radar as soon as possible. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a brutal market. I mean, as great as New York is, um, and how great the fan base is, you know, you go to a game and they play bad and they're on you. 
<laughs> and it, it could be, you know, you could just have one bad power play and they're booing you. And, you know, you make one wrong move or, or you know, you have a couple bad years and, and the fan base, you know, they're relentless. So, um, like you said, the, the reins are now in his hands. And I'm really excited to see what he does because uh, I think he's fully capable of, uh, of doing and making some great uh, moves there. Hmm. Okay, William, let's, uh, let's take a quick break here to hear from a sponsor, and then we're going to pick up this conversation on the other end of things. If you're a member of the New York Islanders and you're struggling to adjust and adapt to life in the Lula Amarillo era and all that it entails, uh, let me help make that process a little easier for you by introducing you to my friends over at Harry's Razors. Harry's is great. Uh, their motto is, you know, they're looking to deliver a close, comfortable shave at a fair price. And as someone who has used their products for a while now, I can definitely uh, vouch for that. Um, I just love the sort of convenience of it all. Uh, you don't have to waste any time walking around the drugstore uh, trying to figure out what blade you should get and then worrying about whichever one you picked being the right one because you might be cutting yourself up or you might be getting razor burn um, and all that bad stuff. Uh, with Harry's, it's super simple. They're going to deliver it right to your doorstep. And they have a quality guarantee where if you don't love your shave when you use their product, uh, you just let Harry's know within 30 days and they'll give you a full refund. And even if you're not uh, a member of the New York Islanders, let's just say you're an average Joe working a nine to five job, uh, um, they have a little something for you as well because by selling it directly to you over the internet and getting rid of the middleman, uh, Harry's can offer their blades at a much more reasonable price for you. And here's the deal. Um, for my listeners, um, you know, Harry's knows that making a switch like this and trying new razor is an easy decision. So they're creating a trial offer for you to test it out. And you can claim yours by just going to harrys.com slash PDO, where you're going to get a $13 uh, trial set uh, that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Um, it's a weighted ergonomic handle. Uh, it's a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade. Uh, you get a rich lathering shave gel, and you get a travel blade cover, all that good stuff. So listeners on my show can go redeem that trial set at harrys.com slash PDO. Just make sure you go to harrys.com slash PDO to redeem your offer and let them know that we sent you to help support the show. Now, let's get back to said show. Okay. Um, so let's, let's, let's transition now and talk more about what you're doing uh, these days with War Hockey Group and, and the more agent side of things. I think this is an area that really fascinates me and I'm glad to have you on because, um, you know, typically we don't, we don't get to have a lot of these discussions in here um, from from people in your line of work. Um, and if we do, it's usually generally kind of puff pieces where the agent is sort of just talking up uh, their clientele. Um, whereas you and I hope hopefully we'll get into a bit of a discussion here about the minutia and sort of where things are headed and how they've progressed and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So. One topic that particularly interests me, I, I, I've been fortunate enough to um, do a bit of work over the past year or two um, with, with, with certain agencies and with certain players in terms of trying to exploit market inefficiencies and figure out ways to, you know, paint players in better lights and sort of um, uncover hidden value or sort of prove that where that value exists. And, you know, when you and I were talking on the phone earlier, we a topic that I really found interesting was, was that exactly that. And it's sort of how analytics has a very big use here in terms of, you know, a guy like Connor McDavid, for example, um, being his agent is very easy. You basically walk up to the negotiation table and you just get a blank check and you fill it in and you sign it and you go cash it with a, with a guy who might be a third or fourth line player or a third pairing defenseman. Um, you know, first of all, the sample size is smaller, but also it's much harder to identify their value when they're not, you know, racking up the points or the goals. So you sort of have to dig a bit deeper and maybe pull back a few layers to sort of prove like, hey, this guy, you know, might not be obviously great, but he's doing all these little things in more subtle ways to create a net positive for this team. Yeah, so I completely agree. Um yeah, when you're when you have some of the top end talent, you know the contract is. You're not necessarily negotiating it. You're just kind of agreeing to, you know, all right, what is the term? How many years? And then, you know, what is the dollar amount? So, and it can be quite easy. Um, but like you said, the the real work goes into the second, third, fourth line guys because that's where you really have to dive in a little deeper and say, okay, what are the metrics behind this player? What makes him successful? What doesn't make him successful? Where is it? Where are his uh, deficiencies as a player 
And, you know, that's kind of where you have to take some risk and you have to ask yourself, you know, if a team comes at me with long-term deal, uh, with a long-term contract on a player who is a second or third liner um, for small dollars, you know, do you take it? And, you know, like you see um, David, Poy- uh, David Poyle does this phenomenally with Nashville. You know, he has a talent. Um, the talent will hit RFA and he'll sign them long-term to relatively small dollars, hoping that in the first, you know, first two or three years that that player starts to outperform his contract. You know, you see it with Victor Arvidsson um, and, and other players in the lineup. And, and you know, it, it, it's a genius move and, and it's really worked out well for him. But, you know, from, from an agency side of the business, it, it, it's really all, you know, what are the numbers saying? You know, where is this player from, from a talent evaluation perspective? You know, where is this player um, from, I guess, an analytical perspective? You know, you have to ask yourself, is what this player doing repeatable? Um, and then, you know, where's the organization from a cap and cash perspective? Um, so that's kind of where we start and how we, you know, start to, you know, paint the whole picture on a certain player. Mm. Yeah, no, the Predators are a fascinating example here because obviously, um, you know, they took a bit, a bunch of gambles on their young defensemen. Um, you know, at the time, guys like Roman Yossi and, and Ryan Ellis and Matthias Ekholm, um, you know, had high pedigree and everyone was excited about them. But whenever you're committing to someone, but it was six, seven years down the road and they're still not a finished product, it's always a bit of a risk. But then obviously when it pans out, you look at how they've managed to sort of have those guys locked up long term at suppressed, um, average annual values. And, and that's a huge home run. And then that allows you to sort of, um, you know, sign a guy like Kyle Turris or maybe overpay a guy like Ryan Johansson a little bit because you have, all those savings and and you know you bring up Arvidsson and and he's a fascinating one because I remember last summer when he signed his extension uh, people online were freaking out they're like well what is his agent doing what's Victor Arvidsson doing like he's taking way below market value after this great season and if he can prove that he can do it again all of a sudden he can make so much more but at the same time I had a bit of pushback um from people in Sweden going like, listen, like this guy's from like a, a small little humble town in Sweden. And when you, especially like as an undrafted free agent, when someone's like, Hey, we're going to give you $30 million. Um, that is a very, very tough thing to walk away from. And I can understand when, even though I might not advise on myself personally, when it's not your money, it's a lot easier. Whereas for a guy, uh, that type of financial security in a sport where there's tons of injuries and unpredictability and anything can happen, uh, I'm sure it goes a long way. Yeah, and you bring up a lot of great points there. Like, people think that it's it's as easy as, you know, kind of one, two, three. You get the contract or you get the deal from um, the team, which a lot of people don't know. So typically, you know, the team, I'd say 95% of the time, hands you the deal, right? They start off the negotiation. Um, and then you kind of work off that. But you have to also realize that you're dealing with people and you're dealing with some people who have come from humble backgrounds. Some you're dealing with people that sometimes don't want to take risk. Um, you know, you get that $30 million, uh, you know, number in front of you and that's guaranteed money. And, and it's hard to say, okay, well, you know, we've seen what you're able to do. Is this repeatable? And if it is repeatable, why don't we take less years maybe at a little bit more money and kind of let's roll the dice. Let's try to make a a good educated bet here and say, if it's repeatable, you know, you put up another couple 30 goal seasons, all of a sudden, instead of looking at 4.25 a year, you know, you might be looking at 5.5 a year, maybe even six. So it's definitely a gamble, but you also have to ask the player, you know, where are you happiest? You know, if he has a girlfriend or a wife, um, you know, he loves his teammates. He might love Nashville. He loves, you know, the situation he's in, you know, there's, there's, a, there's so many different leverage points that can go into a negotiation and can go into a contract that, you know, Victor might've saw the dollars and said, yeah, I know I'm going to be getting underpaid. I know that, you know, people are going to leapfrog my contract in one or two years. Um, but I'm okay with that. You know, I have, you know, $30 million guaranteed and he's fine with it. So, it's definitely a negotiation. And I think that's where the onus is, is on the agent to say, you know, you know, are you willing to take a risk? You know, where are we allocating the risk? Um, and just giving the player as much possible information as uh, giving him as much information as possible 
so that he can make an educated decision. Well, another um, interesting factor here are uh, is the idea of a no move clause or a no trade clause. I remember um, a handful of years ago when you know the Canucks were still relevant and still good, and and being run by Mike Gillis and Lawrence Gilman. Um, I remember at the time as a contender, they were doing a, a really interesting job of sort of. Um, making all the pieces fit financially by basically just giving everyone uh, a no move clause or a no trade clause in their deal. And then that type of security and a lot of people that were signing with the team wanted to stay in Vancouver at the time, obviously, and wanted to control their own future. So you're willing to take maybe less money to get that provision in your deal. And everyone at the time, no one was really complaining because the Canucks were so good and they were able to keep retain all their players. And then when things kind of, when the bottom fell out a little bit and then all of a sudden, um, you know, those no moves, no moves in the contracts all of a sudden started handcuffing the team a little bit and making it tougher to move away from some guys. Then all of a sudden everyone started, you know, yelling about what a, what a disaster it was and how could they make that happen. So I, I always find that sort of fascinating as well, because in these negotiations, you know, sometimes you have to obviously you get in the, all the information as an agent from the team and about the player and you sort of pr- present that to your client. But then there's also this sort of give and take, like with any negotiation and push and pull and you're sort of all sorts of different things to, to factor in. So I, I find that area fascinating as well. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, yeah, it, it's all leverage, right? Like uh, you might want certain dollars. You might want, you know, $30 million over five years and a team might not be willing to pay that, but they might be willing to add in a no movement clause or no trade clause um, for less dollars. So yeah, there's all different types of leverage points and yeah. Um, you know, it's all a trial by trial basis. You know, look, you look at certain teams and how they, they deal with players and they have a blueprint for success. Like you look at Steve Yeiserman, he has a blueprint on how to deal with entry-level contracts and then how to deal with restricted free agents and then how to deal with those players as they enter unrestricted free agency. Um, and then you look at some teams and every player is different. Um, you know, you see it with Schedule A and Schedule B bonuses. You know, for the longest time, Toronto didn't even give those that to uh, entry-level contract players. And, you know, then you get Austin Matthews, and then all of a sudden that changes, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's all a trial-by-trial basis. It all goes by leverage. and um, Yeah. So, okay, here's a, a bit of a thought exercise for you then. Let's say you have a client, and um, you're sort of deliberating between how you want to go about uh, future deals, and... They're coming up off their ELC and you have an option to either go with a bridge deal or a long-term extension. Um, how much is the fact that, you know, we know that the cap is going to spike a little bit here this coming season. And we presume that although it hasn't happened in the past, um, if the sport is going to continue to grow and it's going to continue to thrive, hopefully uh, the cap will as, as a result also continue to soar, um, which obviously means more money for everyone. So how much of that, factors into the decision making and whether you want to take a deal right now that's going to maybe provide you with that financial security versus um, maybe taking a shorter two, three year deal where you can continue to prove yourself and all of a sudden when the cap does rise, really cash in. Yeah. Um, My personal opinion is always probably to go with the bridge deal. I'm a big fan of bridge deals. And I think the reason why is it because from an analytical perspective, and that's kind of where my background is, it allows me to collect a larger data sample of what this player can do in the NHL. Now, if he's coming off of his, you know, RFA deal, he's obviously a younger player. He's still in his prime. So, you know, there, to me, there's an opportunity for let's get the data sample a little bit bigger. Let's see if what you're doing is repeatable. And if it is, let's cash in on your UFA contract. Now, you know, that's my thought process, but it's my job to lay out every single avenue for that player. You can do this, you can do X, Y, and Z, and then have him make that decision. Um, obviously, you know, I'll have my opinion and I'll give the player my opinion on what I think is personally the best, but ultimately it comes down to, to what that player wants to do. Um, I don't really like long-term deals uh, unless they're almost overpaying the player. And and the reason why I say that is because like you just said, the cap is growing. So you're going to get a percentage, uh, you know, you're going to, your deal is going to be consistently less and less percentage of cap. Um, And then, you know, from there, you're also dealing with the ego of of the player. And, you know, uh, as great as it is to have that long-term $30 million deal or $40 million deal, 
in years four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, and you're getting significantly underpaid for what you're doing, it's not fun to show up to work every day knowing that you're getting underpaid for what you're doing. Um, and that's just kind of going over to the, the ego side of the business where, you know, <laughs> no one likes to be underpaid, you know, and all of a sudden you might be putting up, you know, 30 goals a season and you're getting paid X amount of dollars, but the guy who's putting up 15 is getting paid more than you because the caps rose. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it, you kind of just have to give all the information to the player, but you know, my opinion is um, if I think the player is a special talent and I think he, you know, his, if you look at the player's body type, you know, if he's not prone to injury, if he's not a smaller player, you know, how many concussions has he had, you know, how many injuries has he had? Um, you know, if he's not, you know, percept, uh, if he's not, um, prone to injury, you know, then to me, I, I say, you know, take the bridge deal and, and let's really try to see what we can do here. Yeah. Well, this stuff, it, it's always fascinating to me. Um, you know, if there's a contentious negotiation going on or, or, uh, the player and a team are stuck, uh, between a rock and a hard place and can't really come to an agreement. It's, it's always fascinating to me how fans tend to pick the side of the team and they always, uh, complain, complain about the player. Um, because I really do think like the players do get the sort of a raw deal here with the system. And it's not necessarily different than uh, other jobs and in under other industries, but you just look at sort of the pay structure and how, um, how things work. It's like, now that we know that players tend to peak maybe younger than we would have thought in the past, and it's more so in your early 20s, at least from a physical prime, um, those are the years where, you know, they're sort of uh, ceiling for potential earnings is capped because of uh, their entry-level deal, and then their RFA status, and then guys hit the open market finally when they're 27, 28, 29 years old, and then they're getting these massive long-term deals where everyone looking at it from the outside is like, oh man, that is one going to be one of those where in the latter half, that's really not going to age well, and you know we're going to see that every summer, and we're going to see that again this year. Um, just if you look up and down the free agent list, it's a bunch of guys who are sort of around that 30-year-old barrier and it's like oh man the number of four or five six year deals that are going to be handed out is just going to be make me sick but at the same time like it's sort of you're kind of like paying it forward where it's like oh there was probably a bunch of years where this guy was woefully underpaid so it's all kind of evening itself out in a weird roundabout way yeah it's i'm not a big fan of our collective bargaining agreement um you know I, i think things need to get rewritten uh, and I think that's one of the biggest areas, you know, I think analytics, like you said, have shown that, you know, the, the league is becoming younger and younger and, you know, that, you know, a player's prime re- prime years are really in his entry level and RFA years. Um, and during those years, as you know, <laughs> the, the team has all the leverage for the most part. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, like you said, it, you know, you, you finally get to UFA and, you know, you're kind of getting paid back you know, you know, back dollars because, um, you know, you've, you've performed probably under value for so many years that now you're going to sign a bigger contract where all of a sudden when you're 34, 35 years old, you know, you're really hearing it from the fan base because you're not producing at the level that you once were yet you're getting paid, you know, that six, seven, eight million dollar contract. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think it's really interesting because I, I would love for the, I would love for a bunch of different clauses to, to be rewritten. Um, in the collective bargaining agreement, you know, so that we can kind of get out of this, you know, I would love, uh, you know, one, one thing that I know a lot of agents are playing around with right now is an opt out clause, you mm-hmm. know, because when you sign that eight year deal, you know, you're locked in. Right. And that's why we constantly see buyouts um, because GMs make mistakes and agents make mistakes. Right. Um, and, you know, I would love to see, you know, if you sign a long-term deal, let's say six, seven or eight years, you know, halfway through the contract, there can be an opt out on either the organization side or on the player side. You were like, we were talking about, you know, Victor Arvinson, you know, he signed, I believe it was a seven year deal. So, you know, we'll say after the third year, you know, he puts up another 30 goal season and all of a sudden it gives the player to opt out and say, okay, you know, like I'm outperforming my contract. I can get more um, either with Nashville or potentially on the open market. And, and kind of go from there. Um, so, I mean, I would love to see that. Will that ever happen? Probably not. But um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's fascinating because you look at some other leagues, for example, I know like the NBA has, um, opt out clauses and they have all these player options and stuff. And it does seem like it's, you know, not necessarily more evenly balanced, but it does seem like there's a bunch of other different, uh, wrinkles going on that, uh, give the players more leverage and also create various other opportunities. Um, so I, I would definitely be all for that, but you know, I've learned with stuff like this, um, as much as sometimes people have good intentions, uh, the NHL is very slow to adapt to stuff and not necessarily the most uh, progressive or creative. So it could be a long time before we actually see any sort of fundamental changes there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years and see if there's another lockout or, or if there's a strike on the player's side. But mm. So I have a couple other know. things. I have a couple other things here. So, okay, one... Um, you know, we saw at the World Championships, um, they were playing around with this player tracking data, and it's something we've been talking about for years and years. And uh, there was a report the other day that, you know, they're going to, I think, put a tracking chip in the puck, and we're going to see where that goes. And I think, uh, you know, my thoughts on this are, are, are very um, on the record already. I think it's uh, it's long past uh, due that, that we have this stuff, and I think it's really going to change the game um, in terms of what we know and how we approach analysis. But Something I found interesting is that I think there's been a bit of a pushback um, from players where, you know, maybe uh, having access to some of this stuff in terms of, you know, how much how much ground they're covering or how fast they're moving or or what have you. Anything you could think of with all this uh, unique player tracking data might actually be sort of a negative for them or might expose uh, certain flaws or certain warts they might not want available. And we know that players are typically uh, creatures of habit and you don't want too much change. And I, I get that, but it, it, it's fascinating to me because on the one hand, you could sort of go like, oh, well, this could actually... Um, really shine guys in a good light and potentially, um, you know, make them a lot of money. But at the same time, uh, there is a pushback from players where they might not actually be that into it. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Um, I think it's all about how the NHL decides to kind of convey the information, right? Because you have to convey it in a way that gets the players excited. And, you know, when the players first started hearing about analytics, like they, they hated the idea. Right. But now more often than not, you know, you have players constantly wanting to learn more and more and more and trying to make themselves, they understand now that they can use it in a way to, to make them more valuable to an organization, which hopefully, you know, gets them more dollars on their contract. Um, and I think that this is, this is probably going to be the same thing. You know, you look at, um, at first, they're probably scared of it. You know, they think that this is probably going to be a negative for them, you know, um, you know, if they have a certain deficiency in their game, it's going to be exposed. And when a, defic a deficiency is exposed, you know, the organization has more leverage. Um, but, you know, I think it's all in how you convey the message and, and how you flip it and make sure that they're understanding that this can help them, obviously, just as much as it can hurt them. But uh, it, if you take, um, I guess, more of a uh, an approach where, you know, I'm going to use this information to become a better player, to figure out what my deficiencies are, and then get better at those deficiencies, um, I think it's only a, a plus for a player. I'm really interested when you, when you say, and I know that um, in your current job capacity, you're working with players in terms of, um, you know, you're, you're crunching a lot of tape, but you're also using the numbers to sort of help educate them a little bit and help, help grow their minds. Um, but, you know, I, I always... <sighs> I never love it when uh, reporters go into the locker room or something, whether it's after practice or before a game and sort of, um, you know, just throw uh, analytics questions at players because I know all of a sudden it's going to, you know, be met with an eye roll and it's going to be that same uh, quote about how, you know, they don't actually capture everything and all that. And, and, and we've heard it before, but there is obviously um, a value in terms of, especially from a coaching staff perspective or from a training perspective, you sort of, um, you look at areas of strength and weakness and you sort of look at how the game's changing and potential areas where you could exploit certain matchups and stuff like that. And as you said, um, that could obviously increase your production and potentially lead to a higher payday. So what kind of what kind of stuff are you doing in that regard in terms of um, when you have certain information and you're working with a player? Um, because obviously, as you said, how you convey that message is super important in terms of how they're going to uh, greet it and whether they're going to be able to accept it and actually utilize it. So are you 
I, I know you have to kind of be careful with the vocabulary you use. And I, I know that like I tried whenever I speak to anyone in the, in the game now, I never really use Corsi or Fenwick. I make sure to say shot attempts because I know that as soon as I do, their eyes are just going to completely glaze over. So it's, I'm sure it's like little stuff like that that you have to factor in. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I started to do this with the, the Rangers, uh, Mr. Sather used to always tell me, he was like, listen, you could be the smartest person in the world, but if you can't convey that information in a relatable way, then none of these players are going to listen to you. And, and I really took that to heart um, because obviously the goal is to get the players to listen to you um, and to try to help them in any way possible. Um, so I, I use a lot of video. Um, I think video is the best way um, just because they get to see themselves. And even if you can't use the video um, like on a specific player, you can use it on a relatable player. So, you know, if you're, if you're talking to, let's say a goal scorer and you're, and you're looking at shot attempts, you know, you might not want to use him because it's a little bit, you know, tough to say, okay, like this is where you're doing it wrong, but you can show it as another player. You could say, okay, like here's Austin Matthews, you know, this is what he's doing wrong in his game. Do you see, like, are you able to visualize it? Um, and kind of get the context around the analytics, right? Not just the numbers, not just the metric, but specifically video and, and understanding the context around of what I'm trying to say versus just showing them the numbers. Because if you show any of these players the numbers, um, for the most part, they're just not going to want to listen, right? Like you said, their eyes are just going to glaze over. Um, but what I have found is the, kind of the new generation of hockey players, they are kind of growing up with it, right? So they want to know everything. You know, you look at the younger players in the league and, and just specifically from personal experience, you know, I'm getting calls all the time from players saying, you know, like, what am I doing wrong? You know, where are my, where are my metrics good and where are they bad? You know, you know, how can I improve versus the older players? They didn't really come up through the NHL with it. It was kind of the old guard. Um, so um, it's kind of, you know, the two guards right now, but hmm. the, the younger players I can say right now are at least the younger players that I've personally dealt with, you know, they're always looking to get better and they're always trying to find efficiencies in their game. Um, and, and, and yeah, so yeah, when they're not playing video games, <laughs> yeah, when they're not playing <laughs> Fortnite. <laughs> um, so one other potentially interesting wrinkle here that, that I thought of was, you know, now, with all of the success Vegas has had this season and everyone's trying to make sense of it and how it happened and how we all missed it and sort of what the takeaways are from it and how the, what impacts it's going to have on the league. Um, you know, one potential thing I see is, you know, I imagine, and this isn't necessarily anything new, but if you're a player around the league and you're sort of looking at that and you're like, Oh man, like I'm buried on my current team's depth chart and I'm not necessarily playing enough and I'm not getting the opportunity to thrive. And then you sort of look at all these guys who were in a similar spot as recently as last season and they go to Vegas and they get this added opportunity and all of a sudden they have career years. Like I imagine um, one takeaway from that is definitely going to be like, it's, I don't know. It just shows that, you know, sometimes there are these areas to grow. Now, obviously, it's not necessarily going to be uniformly like that. And you can't just expect that every single player that's playing bit minutes on every team right now is ready for a huge breakout season. But at the same time, it does sort of show um, how there might be hidden gems around the league and how. Uh, and that's maybe why we look at stuff like rate stats and on a permanent basis, because it might show that where guys that who aren't playing enough right now might be ready for more opportunity down the road. Yeah, um, it, it really is interesting. I'll I'll tell you when I was so when I was with the the Rangers, I was doing I did my analy- my unrestricted free agent analytical breakdown. It, it really was just more or less a cost benefit analysis of out of all the unrestricted free agents, you know, where can we get the most benefit for the least amount of cost? And Jonathan Margisot was at the top of our list. So. <laughs> um, it would really be really nice if they, if they had locked him up, Mm -hmm. but yeah, you know, I think you look at, you know, you look at the league and you look at specific organizations, there's always players, you know, that for one, for one reason or another, they haven't gotten the opportunity that they deserve. You know, they might've burned a bridge with a coach an assistant coach, you know, a general manager just might have somebody else that's, you know, a little bit higher on the list. Um, but I agree. I think, you know, every general manager right now is probably scratching their head and saying, you know, like, how do we repeat what Vegas just did? You know, who in our organization is undervalued, who in other organizations is undervalued that we could potentially trade for 
um, and really trying to find, you know, the next William Carlson, the next Jonathan Marjasil, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I absolutely love what Vegas did. I love what they're doing, and, and I'm absolutely pulling for them right now. Um, well, I'm, yeah. fa- I'm fascinated from the from the agent side, though, because, you know, obviously Vegas is such a unique opportunity with a clean slate and sort of there was nothing already established there, so everyone is kind of starting from scratch. And you say, like, oh, you know, that's a that's a flash in a pan. It's a one-time thing. But then now with uh, Seattle potentially entering the league on the horizon in the next couple of years, um, like, I imagine that there is going to be um, an incentive there where if you are one of those players who's buried or, or you know, if you're their representative, you might be pushing for that player at all of a sudden, uh, potentially get their chance with Seattle based on how, how things have gone in Vegas. Definitely, yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to... Seattle is going to be interesting because I think, one, you know, you're going to have general managers take a lot harder look at their, at their lineups. Um, and they're definitely not going to make the same mistake twice, but, but also I you think you really have to give Vegas, you know, credit, you know, um, Gallant is an amazing coach and I think it's really an amalgamation of things. You know, if you don't have Gallant, is the team still as good? You don't know. All you, all you hear about these players is talking about is, you know, I love playing for this guy. You know, he's such a phenomenal coach. And we heard that all the way back to, you know, when he was with the Florida Panthers organization. Um, so, you know, from from a player perspective, absolutely. You're always trying to find ways for, for the player to get more ice time and more opportunity. And then all you're hoping is that once he gets more ice time and, and that opportunity that that player executes. Um, otherwise, it's just a wasted opportunity. Hmm. Um, but I think, you know, from Vegas's standpoint, is it going to be replicated? Can Seattle replicate it? I don't know. It, it, it's going to be hard to tell, you know, but I think so much of the credit has to go to the players, but also so much of the credit has to go to the coaching staff and to the front office, because you can see these players and, you know, you, you put them in maybe a different situation and maybe they're not as successful, but when you, when, when you have a team that's completely just banded together the way they have um, uh, under a phenomenal coach, um, you know, a coach that allows them to make mistakes, you know, a coach where they don't feel, you know, like they're going to get scrutinized for every mistake that they make. Um, it, it's kind of a beautiful thing. And, and, you know, coach having, having the proper coach is just, is so huge. You know, I don't know if you, if you listen to that spit and chicklets podcast, but, um, but Ryan Whitney, you know, he always talks about how hard it was to play for Claude Julian, right? Like mm-hmm. every single mistake he made, the coach was down his throat. So, you know, when you're in an environment like that, it is so difficult to play because all you have in the back of your mind is thinking, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? You know, um, am I going to get yelled at for this? Am I allowed to make this rush? Am I not allowed to make this rush? Should I play more conservatively or should I be more offensive? Um, and when you're thinking like that, you can't be successful. And I think what Gerard uh, Gallant has done with that organization has just been absolutely amazing. You've got a bunch of really good players. Um, and you've allowed them just to flourish under his system and under his philosophies. Hmm. Yeah, well said. Um, okay, let's. Uh, oh, before we get out of here, so what is it? Did we miss anything? Is there like what? What's on? What's on the horizon? What is sort of the next big thing or the next? Um, you know, like what's the big thing you guys are talking about these days, or what are you looking forward to? And and I. I didn't really want to talk about uh, this potential uh, upcoming lockout. Uh, it's it's a depressing topic, and I, I'm sure listeners are going to have plenty of time to hear about that on this podcast. So I kind of wanted to stay away from that. But is there like any other stuff that you guys are sort of bracing for, or or trying to adapt to, or or looking at that um, that's sort of occupying your time most these days? Um. I wouldn't say that there's anything that's like specifically occupying a lot of our time, but I know one thing that is, is on the back of our minds is uh, traumatic brain injuries. Mm. You know, you see what's going on. You see what's going on with the, with the NFL right now. Right. And, you know, you see all the headshots that are currently happening in the, in the national hockey league. And, you know, in my opinion, I, uh, it, it might not be too long until the NHL is kind of right there. Um, so I, I know that's one thing that we're, you know, as an agency, we're always looking to, to be, to, to add value to players and, and to add services that are going to bring value to them. And that's one area that we're really looking at right now. You know, how do we make sure that we're providing the best value and services for our clients and, and, you know, brain injuries and making sure that they're getting the right help and, you know, making sure that they're not getting hit in the head, um, you know, are something that we're really looking into right now. 
Yeah, yeah, I know that's uh wow, that's a, a very very heavy way to end the show. <laughs> uh, you asked me. I, I, <laughs> what do you so? What do you want? Usually, like end the show, like oh, like what are you? What are you working on these days? If I'm talking to another media member, and they're like, oh, you know, I got this article coming out. You can follow me on Twitter, and you're like, yeah, we're uh, we're talking about traumatic brain injuries, and uh, it's like, oh, okay, Ooh, that's a that's something to yeah, think about. Sorry, I didn't I didn't mean to to end it on a negative note, but yeah, that's you know, it's a. Uh, it's, it's going to be a big issue. You know, you look at, you know, especially in the playoffs when the refs kind of dial it back a little bit, right. you know, when they let some, some, some things fly that wouldn't necessarily fly during a regular season, you know, you're looking at some of the, some of the hits to the head and you know, it, it, it's bad. You know, you don't, you know, you don't want players to get concussions obviously. And, and, you know, you're looking at, at the data that shows multiple con- uh, concussions can lead to, you know, CTE and, and, you know, from an agency perspective, um, and, and not only that, but from an organization perspective as well, you know, if you have a talent, you want him to play as long as he possibly can. You don't want him to be hindered by concussions and by injuries. So I just think, you know, the, the whole sports science is really probably the next big thing in, in the NHL and in the agency side of the business, you know, what can we do for these players that make sure that they can have a, a long and successful career? Um, and I just, that, that's, that's where we're, uh, that's where I'm probably occupying or focusing a little bit of my time right now, yeah. but sorry to end the podcast. No, 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 that's good. Note. I mean, it's an, it's an important subject and, and, you know, the league would be better off if obviously if the higher ups acknowledged it and, and sort of, we had a more bigger dialogue about it as opposed to just pretending that everything is okay. And sweeping sweeping it under the rug, because as you mentioned, uh, this postseason and all year, we're seeing all this stuff and really it's kind of coming to a head here, no pun intended. And it's, 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 um, yeah, you say it's going to be an issue. I think it already is. And, uh, it's, it's a really good thing to be investing your time and trying to figure it out and make better. So I'm all for that. Yeah, no. Um, well, I, I listen. I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. Oh, William, it was a blast, man. I'm glad to have you on. I'm glad we could have a, a conversation about all this stuff. And um, yeah, so I guess you don't you don't have anything to really plug. Uh, everyone, go check out or or, or hockey group. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can go to uh, our, our Twitter is or hockey group. Um, that's where we pretty much put all of our information about our players. Um, so you can find all that stuff there. If you want to give me a follow on Twitter, you're more than welcome to. It's just William J. Kwam. Um, but uh, I don't really tweet too often. But mm-hmm. um, I'd say if you're going to give anything a follow, give or hockey group a follow. Awesome, man. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. And let's, uh, let's do this thing sometime again down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I had all a right. great time. Cheers, man. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast. Mm-hmm.